stand together for the gospel reading. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, friends. It is so good to be with all of you. Uh, welcome to church. Uh, welcome to uh, the gathering of God's people and the reading of his word, where we can all expect that God has something um, probably both gracious and challenging to say to us, which for me is always good to be reminded of, to remember when I come in to a place like this, um, that the joy that I felt this morning in driving here, I mean, does the weather get better than this? What a beautiful day. What a beautiful and wonderful day. I was um, driving in this morning and felt so thankful and truly um, excited to see all of you. I look forward to seeing your faces and to being together and singing together. And um, immediately start reading and am reminded um, how, what a wonderful thing that both the joy and encouragement of the Lord and his correction and challenge can live right beside one another all at the same time. And isn't that the best kind of love, you know? Um, so... I just, it bears repeating and being reminded that that's always his aim, is to both love us, it's always to love us, and sometimes that includes some challenge, some exhortation. And for me, and maybe I'm alone, um, but this text has come as exactly that uh, to me. When I sat down to, to prepare and, and read and, and sit with it, um, those words just sort of, you know, leapt off the page. Jesus told this, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. This is now the second uh, time that I've had the privilege of preaching this text during election season, uh, which I don't think actually was planned probably purposefully when the compilers of the lectionary, so for those of you who may be uh, new to Christ the King or don't know anything about being Anglican, uh, we don't choose the text we're going to preach from most typically. Most typically they come to us from a very, very old preaching plan, um, which is great because it's meant to be a safeguard against my own bias, right? Um, and to call me to preach the things I might not really want to preach or talk about the things I might be inclined to not talk about. And so um, I don't think that those in Great Britain 500 years ago could foresee that we would be having our national elections at this time, um, but so it happens in God's, I think, great providence and probably sense of humor that we find ourselves now for the second time preaching this text at a time like this. Um, but fear not, I don't want to talk about politics. 
um, or at least not directly. If you were here last week, you remember that uh, we read the parable about the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Um, Luke puts these parables back to back, I think, because they share something in common. He was, a, he was a genius, really, in the way that he crafted his gospel. Um, we don't give him and the Holy Spirit probably enough credit. It's hard to see. But these stories are meant to be read in light of one another. And so the question we're always asking when these parables butt up against one another is why? What do they share in common? What are they both saying? So in case the parable's not familiar to you, it's a story about a, w- a widow who has no advocate, and so she advocates for herself by going to this horrible, horrible judge and like beating on his door until he decides to like give her audience. What she wants is justice. She's concerned with things being made right. And in that particular instance, that just happens to be for her. In this story that Jesus is telling, we are looking at two other people who are also concerned with things being right, namely uh, themselves, <laughs> that they would be made right. Both having to do with righteousness, just coming from maybe different perspectives, angles, or vantage points. The Pharisee, of course, is um, very concerned with himself being right. He also happens to believe that he is already that. The tax collector, of course, not feeling that way um, at all. Righteousness, in other words, is what both of these parables share in common. A word that I assume, for many of us, is somewhat laden with some cultural baggage. Um, doesn't exactly stir one to great like hope and enthusiasm to hear a person like me in a position like this start talking about righteousness. You know, to our shame, that's true. Because the thing that Jesus was talking about, um, the thing that the prophets like Joel and Amos and others in your Old Testament, your Hebrew Bible, what they were talking about, the righteousness of God is actually, I believe, the source of so much of our hope for the world, it's what we believe in, it's what we want, and it's what we long for. It's also the source of a lot of like frustration for us. But it's not boring, I can tell you that. And it's not cringy, or at least it, it shouldn't be. We often think of righteousness in terms of right deeds, what we do or don't do. I do good things and that makes me righteous or not. But that's actually backwards, according to how Jews think about it. Jesus, of course, being himself a Jew, comes from a long line, a long history of a Jewish imagination about the word righteousness that I think is probably pretty different from my own growing up as a Christian Baptist kid like I did. So my associations with the word are different than his. So I have to ask the question, when Jesus talked about righteousness, what did he have in his mind? What was his starting point? Um, And it would have been Abraham. Uh, we've been talking about studying Abraham on Wednesday nights um, at Dan and Catherine's house. It's been a party, I think, actually. I guess it depends on what you call a good time. But we've been doing a deep dive into Abraham's life. And one of the foundational texts of not just the Abraham story, but uh, arguably our faith, is Genesis 12. I made the comment in the study that um, if you have John 3.16 underlined in your Bible, you should also have Genesis 12.1-3 underlined in your Bible. Because that is the verse in which God says to Abraham, the father of our faith, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that, those of you who know, what? So that you might be a blessing, all God's people said. 
Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. In other words, your faith is for something, Abraham. This story, though, begins with that moment, God making this declaration to Abraham, and then a little bit longer, further on in the story, Abraham is filled with frustration and doubt. He just doesn't know what to make of God. God calls Abraham outside. He tells him to look up at the stars. And for whatever reason, in that moment, Abraham believes. And the text says, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. God made him righteous. Had Abraham done anything? No. Not as far as we know. He went outside, he looked up at the stars, and for whatever reason, all of a sudden he believed. He trusted God. That God could do the thing that to him felt, sounded, seemed impossible. The future that Abraham wanted to believe in, he could not secure on his own, and yet somehow, standing there under the stars, for whatever reason, he chose to trust that that future God cared about as much or more than he did. So here's the question then, firstly, for me, is like, do the things that I hope for, that I believe in, that I want for the world, the rightness that I want, the righteousness that I want for myself and for the world, do I believe that God cares about it more than I do? That maybe the reason that I care about it and believe in it and hope for it is actually because God is trying to do a thing through my life, that this justice that we all long for, this rightness that we all long for in ourselves and in other people we feel because of him it's a longing that he gave to us meant to draw us ultimately back to him and instead what we do so many of us is weaponize it against one another a distortion of the gift that god gave the longing for justice meant to bind me to you not separate me from you so in the jewish imagination righteousness has everything to do with trust namely in God. At its root, it's about hope in God that leads to trust. A trust that compels me to live out my faith in God and in my life rather than living out of my fear and my anger. So when we think about righteousness, the question is, what fuels your life? When you are motivated to make the decisions that you make and do the things you do, the thing that you want to believe in or how you operate, what is fueling it? Is it your hope ultimately in who God is? That he's doing something that's more than any of us or one of us or any ones of us could do on our own? Do we believe that that's true? And then are we fueled by that hope? Or contrastly, is the thing that really motivates us and gets us going is the anger that we feel? the frustration that we feel? That's the question. Because they will manifest themselves uh, very differently. And please hear me. I know how angry and disappointed some of us are. And I say us, not just to be kind. I know what it feels like to live in this world as a person who hopes for a future you cannot make real and feel angry and disappointed frustrated. Um, you have good reasons, I suspect, without knowing them. I'm going to trust that there are a number of us who have good reasons for the anger and the frustration that we feel. And 
part of that has to do, particularly for those of us who spent a lot of time um, growing up in the church anyway, part of the frustration has to do with having heard for so long that the Christian response to things that are not as they should be is to make nice with it, um, to be kind, and if you don't have a kind thing to say, then don't say anything at all, and we've grown increasingly suspicious that what that does is just keep things as they are. And so what do you do? Well, you get increasingly frustrated and angry. I've watched this play out in so many of my friends. And what ends up happening is that it erodes the ground for our hope, ultimately. Our faith, our hope, we kind of lose our, our sense of like where we stand and that just makes the it makes it more frustrating more frustrating because you're like well then you know what do you do uh when i read the words jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and they that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt i have to ask myself the question does this live in me do i regard others with contempt that's the faithful and first question Pharisaism, unfortunately, is not something that we just left behind in the first century when we stopped having actual Pharisees. I wish to God that were true. We could just stop calling people Pharisees and then Pharisaism would go away. Sadly, though, it lives with us still and on both sides of the political aisle and in all of our churches and in me, wherever two or three are gathered. There we are. Uh, Arthur Brooks, like him or hate him, um, he's a Catholic writer and thinker. And he wrote a really popular piece in the New York Times a few years ago uh, in which he claimed that the real problem with American society isn't actually our anger or intolerance, it's contempt. He says this, Contempt makes political compromise and progress impossible. It also makes us unhappy as people. According to the American Psychological Association, the feeling of rejection, so often experienced after being treated with contempt, increases anxiety, depression, and sadness. It also damages the contemptuous person by stimulating two stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. In both ways, public and personal, contempt causes us harm. While we are addicted to it, we hate it at the same time, just as addicts hate the drugs that are ruining their lives. I wish that choosing to opt out of politics or church would make us exempt, don't you? If, that, if it was just like, well, I'll just, you know, the way that I can avoid being a contemptuous person and being a Pharisee um, is to just like opt out of the whole thing. I just won't pay attention. I just won't be involved. That won't work either, I'm afraid. So what is the solution? What do we do? Be more open-minded, they say. Um, read people who disagree with you, they say. Um, I, my anger runs deeper than that. And I'm not afraid to admit it to you. If I can't admit it here, God have mercy on me. Not always, but it has before. 
I wish and I have, as an act of discipline, taken up reading voices I disagree with, putting myself in different situations where I could be shaped by those who are unlike me. And I will just tell you, I am a miserable sinner. Not just a sinner, a miserable one. That's just not enough on its own to root it out. I think that's a brilliant and beautiful practice. But if you've ever felt what the tax collector was feeling... Or if you've ever been under threat of feeling what the Pharisee was feeling, it's going to take more than that, is all I'm saying. Ultimately, I can use even that to prove that I'm better than you. Do you see what I'm saying? Am I the only one? That it would feel really good to get into a position and say, well, I'm not a Pharisee of this one ideological, ideological position or this one way of thinking because I have read and listened to a whole host of people so I have a more informed reason for actually still being better than you. <laughs> the end result ends up being the same, produces something similar in us. So what do we do? What is Jesus saying? What does this parable have to do with any of that? So here's the setting for the parable. You have to know some of the context or it won't matter. Here's what happens in the story Jesus tells. Jesus is telling a story about a daily sacrifice at the temple. Every day in the morning and the evening, twice a day, they went to the temple and there were sacrifices made. In the temple courts, everybody could gather at the beginning to watch this sacrifice be made. So before it's made, the priest comes out, everybody sees the lamb that's going to be offered, and people begin to pray in the courts. What happens in this story that Jesus tells is that the Pharisee is standing to pray and praying out loud in some proximity to the tax collector who has tried to get off by himself, by the way. You'll note that Luke tells you that. That's what shame does. It isolates us. He wants to be away from everyone else. And the tax collector is praying out loud, which wasn't that weird. That's what they did. People pray out loud. And he begins to rehearse his own righteousness, the things that he does that make him know, help him know that he's righteous. And here's the thing. I know that we all know that none of us would do that. It's a really low bar, by the way, for what it means to be just like a decent human being, <laughs> is that we know that we're people who wouldn't stand up and like make proclamation of all of our good deeds. It's also just like not socially acceptable, so we can't even really attribute it, you know, to any kind of like moral superiority. It's not necessarily Jesus in me, that's just embarrassing. So I know better. It's not about whether or not you'd say it out loud. He's saying it out loud. And loud enough so that the tax collector can hear him. So you have to imagine what's happening in the tax collector's mind. He's come here to pray. Tax collectors, by the way, I should have said, a Pharisee is a, a legal expert. We think about them in terms of religion, but that's actually um, unfair. These would have been political, religious, and spiritual experts. So that's the Pharisee. He's the elite of society. And you have a tax collector who also elitist in his own right, but he's done it a different way by extorting his own people. Tax collectors were those who worked for Rome. So they collected taxes from Jews who were oppressed by the Roman government. They taxed them and they put a little on the top so they could pocket themselves. They extorted their own people. They were considered, therefore, a traitor of the first degree, a social pariah. So it's curious that he's in the temple at all. He's clearly come because he needs and wants to pray. He gets to the temple to pray, and as he's trying to pray, trying to have a moment with God, this guy is over here loudly declaring 
his superiority. In other words, only further condemning the tax collector. So here's what I, just to put it like in our, a modern day equivalent. Have you ever had the feeling that you're not sure that the other person realizes how wrong they are? And that maybe they need your help in realizing how wrong they are? And you'd like to subtly or not so subtly make sure that they know just how wrong they are. If you've never had that feeling, meet me after <laughs> and pray for me is what I would like for you to do. Because I suspect we can all relate to at least the temptation to make sure that they know. It's exactly what the tax collectors do or the Pharisee is doing, believing it to be his God-given responsibility to make sure that somebody else knows just how wrong they are. Now, what's sad about that is that, you know, the prophet feels something similar, you know? So what separates the Pharisee from the prophet? That's the question, isn't it? How do we know? The tax collector's trying to pray. This guy's yakking all over him. He's getting more and more discouraged, more and more frustrated. And then the priest comes out with the lamb. He sacrifices in front of everyone, takes it, slits its throat. He takes the blood from this lamb and he splashes it on the altar in a dramatic visual representation of atonement. In other words, visually, visibly portraying what's meant to happen to Israel. And he declares in that moment that their sins are forgiven, that they're made clean. And it's in that moment, I believe, that the context would suggest that the tax collector sees this act of grand forgiveness and mercy on display, even with all the shame and condemnation that he feels from over here. And it's that act of mercy that inspires or elicits hope in him that causes him to cry out. Actually, it's a bad translation. What he actually says is, God, not have mercy, but make atonement for me. In other words, make me right. You who are merciful and good, because you are good in a way I am not, make me right. In other words, it's the mercy that he sees that elicits or draws out the repentance and the desire to change. I don't think that that's unlike what happens to Abraham under the stars. Abraham had a moment of doubt and frustration in God. And that God, rather than responding with chastisement, takes Abraham out and says, Look at the stars, Abraham. Look at how good I am. Look at how beautiful they are, how big they are. I love the stars, Abraham. And because I am the God of beauty, I'm the God that cares for the sparrow, for the rain, for the drought. For your real life, I am that God. I also dare to hope for a better world. And I'm going to bring it to bear through you. Do you trust me, Abraham? And he believed and counted it, God did, to him as righteousness. In other words, where I think this comes home for me and for you is to be reminded that the thing that actually changes me is mercy. It's mercy. It is the mercy that I have seen 
in the person of Jesus that has changed me over and over and over and over again. And this is a subtle, not so subtle reminder from Jesus that if that has been true for me, it's probably true for the people around me. I think what the world needs is a more hopeful church. That our faith would be rooted in a trust that God is better than we are. And that he is indeed at work in the world around us. And if I can stay connected to that hope and that trust, then what will come out of me like a fire in my bones that comes out of my mouth, is an insistent love, a truth-telling love, a courageous love. And if we are not loving our neighbors well, then that is a conversation we need to have in the church. Are we loving our neighbors well? All of them. And I want to have that conversation without fear or condemnation. I want you to be honest with me about the degree to which I am or am not loving my neighbors well. That's not politics, firstly. You know? Dr. King says, carve out a tunnel of hope through that dark mountain of despair and disappointment. Paul said, hope does not disappoint because the love of Jesus has been poured into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know the future God has for us here. I just want one rooted in hope and in the person and mercy of Jesus. And I need you to hold me accountable to that. I will hold you accountable to that. Together we'll, I hope in Jesus' name, carve out a tunnel of hope. Yes. Do you need to be more hopeful? Do you need more hope? Then remember the mercy of Jesus. He is more real than the thing that we fear or feel frustrated by or angry at. And trust me, there is good reason every now and then to feel angry. That's going to come. If you haven't felt angry, you haven't been paying attention, comes but even my anger will serve the lord jesus christ every knee will bow even my angry ones my self-righteous ones my prideful ones my hopeless knees every knee and i have so much hope in that fact it doesn't make me feel proud. It makes me feel hopeful because when every knee is bowed and Jesus is there, then we're all better. We're all more merciful. We're all more loving because of who he is. I pray that would be true for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Appropriately, the liturgy is designed to lead us into prayer after we hear the words of Jesus. Depending on the tradition you grew up in, prayer looks like a lot of different things, no doubt. 